With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following reflects neither the policies nor the thoughts of iHeartMedia or its employees. But we think it's probably a good idea to listen to it anyway. Money Sense is a presentation of Kirsten Wealth Management Group. As managing partners of Kirsten Wealth Management Group, your hosts, Dennis Kirsten, Brad Kirsten, and Kevin Kirsten, are professional financial advisors with over 50 years of combined experience. They can be reached in their offices in Perrysburg at 419-872-0067 or 800-875-1786. Their email address is kirstenwealth at lpl.com. Also visit their website, kirstenwealth.com. Securities are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Good morning and welcome to Money Sense. You're listening to the advisors of Kirsten Wealth Management Group, Kevin Kirsten and Brad Kirsten. Happy to be with you this morning. Uh, Brad, as we've gotten into the second quarter here, the market has kicked off with an even further rally. And uh, I don't think anything that uh, we talked about in the last couple of weeks is really going to change. Uh, the themes are the same. The rally has continued and the market is approaching a double digit gain on the year. That being said, we're much more cautious than uh, than certainly we've been almost at any time in the last year, uh, certainly not recommending uh, any drastic moves for anybody, but certainly rebalancing, uh, going to the low end of your risk spectrum makes a lot of sense at this time. Yeah, we haven't made any major changes, but certainly new money is not getting fully invested like it was months ago and a year ago. And the one thing I think that's changed that we knew was coming at some point here is the kickoff to this rally this week was the Friday. The market was closed, Good Friday, and we had a huge jobs number. And that jobs number is one that I think was anticipated. We didn't know when we were going to start to get these big jobs numbers, but it did start on Friday with almost a million jobs added in the economy. And it's not surprising where they were added. Uh, The breakdown of that is kind of interesting of how many big companies are now adding back jobs. They're, they're 70% of those jobs were coming in uh, uh, healthcare and tech. And healthcare and tech, though, still 15% of S&P companies still have fewer workers than they did a year ago with, with healthcare and tech. The average is about 45% of, of companies having fewer. So there are still some companies out there that are growing and bigger than they were a year ago. But you take a look at some of the hardest hit sectors, energy being one of those, of the S&P 500 companies, 100% of them have fewer jobs than they did a year ago. And uh, so it does. it is a sector-to-sector thing, and we're seeing that in the growth of those sectors this year, the ones that are adding jobs the quickest, the ones that need the economy open. Uh, those are the ones, eh, you take a look at, at airlines and, and, and hotels, cruise lines. Those are the ones here over the last two months have really picked up steam, and they were lagging all the way through, call it election of last year. And now that they're being allowed to to hire back and being allowed to open up and do things a little bit more normal. The anticipation is that will continue for a few more months. I think the jobs numbers for the next probably three months are gonna gonna look pretty good, and it'll probably only be the low end uh, that'll have trouble uh, not finding work. The work is there, but the low end uh, I- employer trying to find the lower end, call it under twelve dollars an hour employee. That's where the trouble is going to be. Well, the stock market and the economy are two different things, and so we can we can read from the Wall Street Journal till we're blue in the face about how good the numbers are. It doesn't have anything to do with whether your stock portfolio goes up or down in a lot of cases. I mean, we were humming along with an unbelievable economy in 2018, and the market sold off 20% in December. Yeah. So there's a lot more that goes into it, and so I would caution everyone, and the reason I bring that up, Brad, is so many people at the bottom don't want to invest right when the numbers look bad economically and so many people at the top think it's in a completely an all clear sign when the economic numbers start coming in better to invest 
That's not how it works. Uh, markets anticipate things. And the next thing uh, that's probably going to have to be anticipated that will cause a shock, it has every single time in the last 10 years, is when does the Fed start raising rates? And and that'll be the that'll be the next shock that comes down the pipeline or even anticipation of them doing that. Yeah, I can find more speed bumps coming up than than I can uh, euphoria in the in the numbers or euphoria in, in unanticipated good. Uh, I mean, we've got increases of taxes that not only do we have to wait for them to get passed, but the anticipation of that getting passed will be a negative on the economy. You don't have to wait for the tax bill to come on higher taxes. The market will negatively, negative, and companies will negatively react to it and batten down the hatches a little bit because they don't know what's coming. Well, and the severity of those speed bumps that you talk about, Brad, get exacerbated by the fact that the market's high. Mm -hmm. Every tick the Dow and the S&P goes higher makes even what doesn't seem like a big speed bump a much bigger speed bump than you think. Probabilities change based on where the market goes. Higher the market goes, the less the probability of good returns moving forward. So if the market rallies, who knows, another 10%, it takes just the slightest thing for mm -hmm. it to sell off 10 or 20%. We have large swaths of the market sectors asset classes up 20 plus percent this year three months into the year here right and we're coming off of if we look at a month end we're coming off of the best 12 month performance in the last 30 years 56.4 percent for the s p 500 from march to march end of march last year to end of march this year 56.4 so if you don't think that we've had good performance then you're you're not paying attention to how low we were, and that is the the case at some point. Is people say, yeah, I'm I'm up, I'm at an all time high, I'm plus twenty percent off on my maybe previous high that I ever looked at, but I didn't look at it for about nine months. I don't know how low it got. If you see how low it got and then how far we've come, without everything being fully reopened and without everything probably ever getting back to a February of last year normal, it does seem rich. The market's over twenty percent higher than it was pre-pandemic. So, the you know, t and yes, a lot of stimulus, all the other things that go in. You were mentioning jobs numbers, Brad. Just this morning, job openings numbers. So this is a little bit different. This is what's available. Um, reached a pre-pandemic uh, high of 7.37 million. That's higher than it was in February uh, before the March crash. Uh, and not quite the highest ever, 7.57 million in November of 18. Uh, but this is just goes to what you were talking about. A lot of job openings. I just heard that Delta had to cancel flights because they didn't have enough employees. Uh, they don't have enough pilots. They don't have enough planes. Uh, you hear it all over the place. Companies having trouble finding people. Uh, yeah, why? Walk, walk into an empty restaurant and have them tell you, no, we, we don't want you. And you know what's going on. They can't get anybody. Right, right. And so uh, that that's a precursor to inflation as well and we'll talk about that a little bit later in the show but those job openings are out there uh people don't want to get up and 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 take those jobs because they're being paid a whole lot of money to stay home uh you know especially at the lower end so uh but that number came out and it hit a pre-pandemic high so what are we looking at here moving forward uh certainly you're seeing all the companies come out brad at the end of the first quarter raising their their projections for the s p 500 it's always comical to me that that happened yeah. really three months later and yeah. now you think it's going to be higher why just because it went up uh but a lot of companies are doing that they're changing their projections on where they think the 10-year treasury is going to go uh and, and and people are are making those adjustments as they always do at the end of the first quarter a uh, couple different uh news stories out of government uh we're looking at you know what's going to happen with these tax bills that they might try to force through mansion uh joe mansion out of west virginia which I don't know how much you can trust what he says because he, he flips and flops all over the place. But he did say that he would not support the 28% corporate tax. Uh, so we'll see what, uh, what, what type of compromise, if any, that they come to or if they throw him some other bone that makes him say, okay, now I'm fine with the 28% uh, tax. Uh, Maybe tax that's increase. what it is. I'll yeah. tell you one of the, uh, the things on the, on the corporate tax that will never happen. The global corporate that they're trying to do is right. never going to have it. It is going to be a complete waste of time. I don't mind if they waste time on it because if they spend time on that, well, they, just be like they a, won't be doing something it'll else. Be, it'll just be like all the stuff we do with China, with climate change, where everybody in the world makes all kinds of promises 
and the U.S. is the only country that sticks to it. Right. So, yes, I think they will do the global corporate tax, Brad, and then we'll be the only one who enforces it. That's right. Yeah, there's no way Ireland, I mean, they became a tax haven in the 90s. You think they're going to go back on it? It's the only reason companies come there. It's the only reason Ireland's growing at all. But think about it, Brad. Not, why would they do it? We had a global minimum amount that everyone who not a, not was a supposed global, to contribute to, to NAFTA. Not yeah. everyone globally, but everyone in NAFTA. We had a minimum amount. We all agreed on it. Yep. We were the only one who did it. Yeah. Not even Germany did right. it. Right. Yeah. Right. It was like, wink, wink, ha, ha, isn't this a complete joke? So uh, on, on the climate change stuff, they were trying to get the carbon emissions and all that stuff together. Who's the only one who did it? United States of America. Right. So they can they can talk all they want. I think Yellen will have meetings and they'll fly over there and we'll spend all kinds of government money. And guess what? Everyone will shake hands, and then no one else will do anything. Right. <laughs> you watch any documentary about polluting the oceans. I just watched one about plastic in the ocean and all this stuff. At the end, even these super liberal people that are making the documentary, they realize, oh, it's all just coming from China and Indonesia. It, we, they, they were even saying— They always act like the, the Americans America are the bad guys. Is, America's taking away the plastic straws, but there aren't any plastic straws in these vast plastic things. It's all f fishing nets— that are catching a bunch of plastic that China's just dumping in there because some contractor paid to take a bunch of garbage and he just threw it in the ocean, got mm -hmm. paid for it. America's not doing it. Well, do you even know what we're doing with the, the plastic water bottles? We can't recycle them. So you throw them in there. We, we don't have enough recycling capability to recycle all the plastic water bottles. So we put them on a ship and ship them to China. Yeah. And then China does some recycling, dumps the rest in the ocean. Yeah. In fact, I, I, I saw a long documentary, Brad, on, and the conclusion was you're better off putting your plastic bottles in, in the landfill because at least it doesn't, it doesn't up, make it in the ocean. It doesn't make it to the ocean. Yeah. So, but in any event, this is all these things that they want to do globally that never work that we are the only ones that stick to. Yeah. Look, look at the Iran deal. Yeah. That was another one, right? Yeah. Iran was like, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, pay us a bunch of money. Yeah. yeah, we'll do that. We'll do that. Yeah. <laughs> and what are you going to do if we don't? <laughs> right. So it's the same thing on this. They can waste all the time that they want on global corporate. It's not going to happen. I don't even know if they'll get companies we to agree give, to it. We always give countries the money beforehand. It's like if your kids, yeah. if you tell your kids, hey, uh, go out and pull weeds in the yard. I'll give you $10 right now. Right now. Yeah. You think the weeds <laughs> yeah. are going to get pulled? I yeah. mean, <laughs> What if you prepaid your contractor to do all the work at your house? You think it get done on time? No. But that's what we do with every other country around the world. So... So, uh, Brad, just kind of rounding out this segment, looking at some of the numbers here, uh, get, get some of your thoughts. Uh, uh, in the last 30 years, the best 12-month performance of the S&P uh, ended uh, last Wednesday. That was the best in the last 30 years, 56.4. But we mentioned, even if you take that out of the equation, still a good number, uh, over 20% year on year. Pre-pandemic. Yeah, or pre-pandemic. Pre pre yep, yep. So... Um, or even the year to date. You look at the year to date; it's it's really skewed to uh, smaller and mid size. It's skewed to value over growth. But you look at the overall, and it's still ab above average. And that's why everyone's having to up their their estimates. Everyone always assumes below average, and then when you get even close to average, everybody has to go back and say, "Oh, guess guess it was going to be better than I thought." So, be beware when everyone's upping their estimates that we're probably going to disappoint again because they're. They're all wrong. Investors are always wrong, Brad, and here's the proof. 66% uh, of investors were bearish uh, a year ago, okay, on the direction of the U.S. stock market for the next six months. And then we turn around and have one of the greatest six months ever. Uh, moving on, April's been the number one month for the S&P over the last 30 years. Uh, gains an average of 2.2%. Uh, no November is the next best performing month, so it's kind of interesting to see here. Uh so if you look at uh, retail uh, having a little bit more control over the movements on the market, how about this one? We talked about Robinhood uh, a couple a couple shows ago. It is a real factor. 23% of all equity trading uh, is retail. That's double uh, from 2010. Mm -hmm. So kind of interesting to see that. Uh, Long-dated treasuries, bad, lost 15.8% over the one year ending 331. Uh, that's the most sensitive to rising rates. Uh, and uh, that is anything with a maturity of 10 years or longer. Uh, so that's something to uh, that we'll continue to pay attention to as we see the aggregate bond index down. What is it down now? Over 3% on the year. 
Yeah, yeah, we, we got the ten-year Treasury just below one point seven, and and yeah, the overall uh, three, the longer-dated uh, Treasuries, triple that uh, as a negative. So yeah, I, I, I'm not worried about that continuing. Uh, it's well, just math. But and the, and the Fed's buying a lot of these bonds to prop it up. I mentioned that that news story is going to come in in next year or or, or beyond, but it's going to come at some point. The Fed's buying one hundred trillion twenty billion dollars a month. 80 billion of treasuries, 40 billion of mortgage backs. Yeah. Okay. And they've, that, they've said they're there for, for the long term, but if rates keep going up, they're not going to be there for the long term. Uh, right. And they mentioned maximum employment and price stability. So if inflation comes, that's not price stability. That'd be something that they might have to back off on as well. Yeah. Now they're looking for 2% inflation and unemployment. What's their target now? Under five, I think, before they said they're going to back off. Um, and, uh, and here we are. Six probably next next go round we'll probably get to five point nine on unemployment so we're we're headed there it's uh, it's probably not as far off as people think it is uh, how about this one we have ignored the national debt we've ignored it for the everyone says you're ignoring the national debt well we've ignored it for a hundred years but it 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 is something that has an annual cost how about this Brad uh, last year the government sent three hundred forty five billion on interest payments on the national debt. Uh, five years earlier, uh, we had spent $223 billion on interest payments. Uh, so uh, that's, an in, that's an increase from $600 million a day to $945 million a day uh, in, that, in that stretch of time. So U.S. household debt's actually in really good shape as compared to income, though. Yeah, uh, you, you always see this as a dollar number. And it is astonishing to me how low as a percentage it has gotten. That peak back in 2007, I think, was our peak when we had all the housing. Um, you look at the dollar number back then, I think we, it was something like $12 trillion or something like that. It's barely increased. It's increased about 10% over a, what is that, 14-year period. Yeah, $12.7 trillion before the financial crisis to $14.5 trillion. Uh, incomes have gone up more than that. So and and then also the debt service on that debt is a is a lower payment. How about the number of people? You, mm-hmm. Even the number of people have increased by more than twelve percent. So yes, people are making more over that fourteen year period, but also we have that many more people with debt. So you always have to look at it as a percentage of something, percentage to net worth, percentage to income, right? And that will even out how many people have that debt. You can't just look at the raw number. The raw number should always go up if we have a growing economy and a growing population. House one one encouraging thing is household debt service is the lowest it's been since nineteen eighty. On, on what does average, it cost you per, uh, per month yeah. compared to your income per month? So although our government and that debt situation is in much more dire straits, government can also print money, the individual, the consumer, the household is as good a, good a shape as almost they've ever been. And that is an encouraging sign. Rising interest rates might change that, but it is an encouraging sign. We're going to take our first pause. You're listening to Money Sense. Kevin and Brad Kirsten, we'll be right back. And welcome back to the show. You're listening to the advisors of Kirsten Wealth Management Group, Kevin Kirsten and Brad Kirsten. As a reminder, we are professional financial advisors with offices in Perrysburg. Uh, Give us a call if you have any questions throughout the week or you want to set up your own consultation, 419-872-0067, or check us out online at kirstenwealth.com. Brad, we we talk about growth and value a lot on this show, and we saw a, a mini cycle of growth and value where we had an explosion of growth names like tech from the end of the pandemic lows in March through election. And then from election day till today, we've seen an explosion of value. And so many people I think are looking at their 401k statements today saying, well, now everything has pretty decent numbers, but what do I buy moving forward? Mm -hmm. What do I buy moving forward? What do I want to own? If you go back to 1979 uh, on the indexes uh, in their current form, they've, they haven't, they weren't around, they weren't split up like that before. Uh, But back to 1979, Guess what? Through March of 2021, 331, you have 12.1% annualized for growth, 12.0% annualized for value. Yeah. So many people in the last 10 or 20 years maybe fall in love with tech, and then there's people over other periods that fell in love with value. Guess what? Performance is the same. And that's why we say there's always this reversion of the mean. The longer you go where one outperforms the other, you just got to keep either rebalancing back to an even weighting or at some point, you have to tilt the other way because you know what's coming. It has always happened. So if you look at these periods where growth and value have either outperformed or underperformed one another, uh, 
from 79 to 88, growth was up 280%. Now, we remember the 80s as being a very good time. Uh, big expansionary uh, GDP. Uh, growth went up 281%. Value went up 403%. And by the way, that was a great time for international as well. I was just going to mention that. You've had a couple different spurts for international. That was one of them. 2004 through 7 was another. 89 through 99, 764% for growth, 433% for value. 2000 through 2008. Right after. Reversion to the yeah, mean. Yeah, right growth, after the, the growth, dot-com bubble. Growth gets cut in half, minus 52% in that eight-year stretch. Value made 6.6. Doesn't sound good, but when you compare it to growth, being down half yeah. makes uh, outperforming by over 60% right. over that period. And since the financial crisis lows, growth up 683% and value up 275. You see this this you know ping pong effect back and forth on growth and value. Uh, in the first quarter of this year, the Russell 1000 value was up 11.3, while growth was up 0.9. So we're seeing it continued. Uh, and and look, so why couldn't growth? and value work moving forward. And I think there's, there's an argument for both. There really is. Well, and I and, and how they're defined either by an active manager or even indexes that have a little bit of a filter on it, not just the broad S&P indexes, but some of these have a filter where you're getting a little bit of both because of the characteristics that, uh, that we're looking for. And, and there are times that we're putting in some of those thematic or just factors that are going to capture some of the the growth in a value area or grow or uh the underperformance uh in a growth area and we can talk a little bit about that too there's still be a long way to go to make it equal though brad uh if you go to the end of last august the outperformance in annual returns for growth over value uh was 24.2 to 4.5 so we've kind of shifted that here uh since september 1st uh, even after the comeback in value in recent months, the Russell 1000 growth has outperformed the value index by 12% per year over the last three years. Okay, To make up for lost ground, they have to outperform by a total of 36%, obviously, this year total yep. to, to make up the difference. So uh, you can see most of the time either growth is outperforming by a wide margin or value is outperforming. Very rarely are they both doing well at the same time, which is kind of interesting to look at. Yeah, I, I can't think of a year here recently where you had that. You, you, had a, you had a winner and you had a loser. Really, over the last 10 years, I think we've only had one full year uh, where you had value really outperforming, but that did not make a trend. Growth came right back into, in 2019 and 20 to right. be the leader. Right now, though, if you look at the numbers off the March lows, everything compared to their long-term price-to-earnings ratios is expensive. So really, when you look at growth versus value, and you're looking at value in particular, it's more, well, I'm not as expensive as growth, yeah. uh, as opposed to just actually being cheap compared to their long-term averages. But we mentioned that at the beginning of the show. Yeah, and you, you, you said it right there. I want to make sure people heard that. Compared to their long-term averages, growth is always more expensive because it's growth of earnings that's putting it in that growth category versus value being under undervalued or a uh, that maybe a dividend-paying category. But the way to compare is comparing each sector or each asset class to its historic norm. What does the Russell 1000 value typically trade at? over the last 10, 20, and 30 years. And let's compare it to that currently versus growth. If you just compared growth to the overall market, it's always going to seem expensive, and you'd always find a reason never to invest in it. That's right. And uh, one thing, one factor that uh, J.P. Morgan put out in their guide to the markets, Brad, was which sectors are highly correlated to the, the economy. So we always talk about the stock market's not the economy. Well, for a few sectors, the stock market and the economy are much closer to one another. And so you look at this year, we probably are going to print a pretty good GDP number. Um, what's most sensitive to that? Number one sector, industrials. That's a big value sector. Yeah. Number two, correlated to the, to the GDP of the economy, financials. Number three, communications. Number four, energy. These are all value sectors. Then technology and healthcare are kind of in the middle. Okay, what's least correlated to GDP? Well, those are your defensive sectors, uh, consumer staples and utilities. So kind of interesting to see that. So when you look at these cycles that we go through growth versus value, one thing that I think I always run into when I'm talking to people is there's an assumption that when you're in that cycle that, well, no, this is just different this time we're going to continue that cycle forever no. so i think that's one big mistake yeah. going back here to your, your previous thought think about 
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Especially the GDP expansion we're about to have with, with the government footing the bill for a lot of this and the government pouring money into the economy. The two that you mentioned that were defensive are where consumers spend money and are going to spend money no matter what's happening, consumer staples and utilities. The other is where the government's currently going to be pouring money in, has been pouring money into, and and that's where, you know, if, if that is going to drive the economy forward, it's those sectors, industrials in particular. So, and this is Ben Carlson, uh, somebody I, I follow online, uh, what is his, uh, Common Sense Investor or something like that is the name of his, A Wealth of Common Sense, excuse me, uh, is the name of his blog that he does. But he says you have three choices. I want to get your take on these three choices on growth to value as people are looking at their portfolios. And I mentioned since 1979, the performance is not that much different, okay? So your three choices are you just pick one style and you just stick with it. Okay. You can do that. Yep. You say, I'm never going to deviate. Yep. I like I like growth stocks. I'm going to buy growth, but I'm never going to touch it. Okay. I'm never going to panic when when other areas of the market. And I'm never going to get greedy when other areas of the market are doing better. Uh, number two, uh, you try to overweight. Pick a style that will outperform at any given time. You try to overweight or underweight. Uh, and number three, you just own both. You equally weight both, and you just continuously rebalance. Now, interestingly enough, that third strategy, number three, you're always going to be holding uh, outperformers and selling those to buy underperformers, yeah. something that we traditionally believe in. So looking at the 50-50 rebalance of those two indexes, you get up to 12.3% a year. Not not a great since this is since 1979 doing an annual rebalance. Yes. End of the year. You add yep. about two two tenths uh to your overall performance yep. or three tenths if depending on the index you look at by doing that. But when when you look at those three strategies, what do you like the best? Well, for the ride that someone will take, I'd like the third because the the path to get to that average return is a lot smoother one. And one that won't have someone panic. And so I would even say that, um, and, and over time it actually doesn't matter. There have been times where the, where the trend has continued longer. A more or less in, uh, a frequent rebalance is something that, uh, that you can kind of play with too. Or just not doing it on the calendar year. Doing it when you, when you get to some inflection points. As a, as a way for someone who wants to tinker, just simply do that. Let's go back when you have outperformance. But you're being contrarian when you do it, and I think it's a hard thing for individual investors to do. The, the stick with one, I think you will you will have the thought creep into your you have mind. the most volatility. The most one. volatility. Yep. And you'll have the thought creep into your mind that this time it's different when it's not going your way. And yep. you will deviate from the long-term strategy that will eventually get you that performance. But at some point in your investing career, you will think, I'm missing out. This time it's different. Maybe maybe what I'm invested in will never work again. Right. It, you can go a long time. And, and I think number two is probably only for people who have a financial advisor who can help them decide how and when to, to overweight uh, or underweight growth to value. Number three is, to me, the best one for somebody who doesn't want to pay attention to it. If you can do a rebalancing program in your 401k and you can have growth and value equally, just set it up and don't even pay any attention to it. Yep. And that's probably the best for someone who just is working, saving for retirement, and doesn't want to you know, 
tinker with it too much to some extent until you get larger sums in your 401k it's happening automatically uh as even if the rebalance isn't something you can set up by your accumulation being set to uh to the, the those same percentages you're 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 continuing to buy more of uh of that even growth to value and it, also if you have the retire ready or the target date funds it's also happening automatically that rebalance is going to happen inside those portfolios so right. to some extent that third one is what people have experienced in their 401k and why they're getting a probably a slightly smoother ride than the volatility the overall market will give them by the way the S&P 500 is half growth half value right so you got to understand what we're talking about here uh the Dow Jones definitely has a value tilt and the, the NASDAQ, NASDAQ has, has a, a tilt, uh, has a growth tilt yeah. Yeah. Uh, overall, but the S and P, for the most part, well, I shouldn't even say that because the tech part has, has grown has grown quite a bit. But you do have a, a a value and growth if you just own the S and P. So that's something to keep in mind as well. We're going to take our next pause. You're listening to Money Sense, Brad and Kevin Kirsten. We'll be right back. And welcome back to the show. You're listening to the advisors of Kirsten Wealth Management Group. Kevin Kirsten and Brad Kirsten, happy to be with you this morning, Brad. Switching topics a little bit. Uh, I saw a headline here on a uh, MarketWatch article uh, that was titled, uh, You Have a Million Dollars, How to Make That Money Act Like a Pension. And I think that that is sort of a buzz headline that I think draws a lot of eyeballs. So I wanted to talk about it a little bit because one of two things is happening. It's it's something you click on when you go online. You have a million dollars. What do you do? How do you make a pension? But I also think it's a buzzword for some advisors that do some things that are not are not the right thing. They're just saying they're turning it into but a pension. But they they have realized that making your retirement a pension is yeah. like a is like a a buzz keyword for for someone to perk their eyes up and say, "Oh, that sounds interesting yeah. to me. Tell me about it." But in this environment of low interest rates and rising interest rates, there's no shortcut. Yeah. You have to know what a risk-free rate is and what's reasonable. And if you're hearing something that says you're getting a guaranteed, you know, pick your number, five, six, seven. It's not. It's not guaranteed. And so you do have to know what's reasonable. Now, in this article, they're talking about some good things. And maybe we'll even mention some of the ones that are a bad thing. But, yeah, a little bit of this is is, is clickbait. But, uh, uh Anyone can do this on their own. There is nothing special. There's nothing you have to uncover due diligence. There's nothing that says you have to get a million dollars in order to do these things. These are all things anybody can do on their own when they retire. And and a lot of times, too, they want to call it a pension. It's just a withdrawal strategy. Yeah. It's not a pension. You know, you can receive a stream of income from your time. Well, you can do that at any time. Yeah. Okay. Now, others will say, oh, well, we can make it guaranteed. Well, no, you can't. You can't make it guaranteed without giving up certain things. Yeah. Okay. Right. And, and so you need to know what that is. You need to know what's reasonable, and then you got to make the decision uh, for yourself. I mean, it's just a big formula based on where interest rates, how old are you, and what can be reasonably spit off from your portfolio to last your lifetime. Let me give you one that would be a mistake if somebody is just simply taking withdrawals out of their out of their IRA. And yeah, maybe the advisor's calling it a pension or they're saying they're doing something creative to create income. Having your retirement plan or your portfolio create income via dividends or interest or yield on the bonds, and that's what you're going to live on, I think is a recipe for disaster because now you're talking about this growth devaluating and maybe having, having it equally weighted. Now you're overweighting dividend payers. You're overweighting, probably in this environment, highest yielding bonds, the most aggressive bonds. You're, you're solving for something that doesn't need to be solved for. You don't need to create income in your IRA to have income. To have income. Right. And we'll have even colleagues in this industry say, well, how do you solve for income in your in your plan? Well, and You don't need to solve for income. That's you a, just take a withdrawal. That's a great quote, by the way, Brad. You don't need to create income to have income. Uh, and I think that's that's very important. So uh, get your thoughts on on some of these strategies. Let's just start with the four percent rule. You know, okay. a lot of studies have been out. How much to take from your portfolio? Four percent rule. Now, are you generating four percent yield? No. no. And not, you don't need to. You, don't you can need to. take a four percent withdrawal no matter what your investments are. So you could have it be 100 percent stocks. It could be 100 percent growth stocks. and You could still take a four percent withdrawal. Don't make that mistake. So if you look at. Let's say you want five thousand a month in retirement. 
you want 60,000 a year, 4%, you need a million five, you get 60,000 a year, you add in your other sources of income like social security to get to your retirement uh, income goals. So uh, some people might not need 4%. They may need more. Some experts argue that following the general guideline leaves a huge amount of money left over. Um, yes, I mean, there's certainly that possibility. The 4% rule has about a historical 90, what, 92% success ratio for most people. Um, there's going to be 8% where if you retire at the wrong time and the market does poorly for an extended period of time, that will run out. 92% is pretty good. But within that 92%, there's a large percentage who are going to have way more money than they could have ever imagined because they retired not in a bad time, but in a good time. But you can't make your retirement assumptions best based on the best time ever. So those, the 8%, just going back to that so people are aware, negative returns early are the only thing that blow that up. So flexibility early is also important. If you retire at the wrong time and your portfolio takes a hit, being able to reduce your, especially if you're retiring early, being able to reduce the income that you're taking out so your portfolio can recover. Having something in the portfolio that didn't go down so that that's all you're selling and you have the discipline to sell that thing that did not go down will help your portfolio recover. Or having the ability to go back to work and cut those withdrawals off altogether, that that, that puts you at probably closer to 100% success if you have one of those three things. That's right. So, you know, with the 4% rule, if you want to start drawing principal, you can go up a little bit more. Uh, you can, a lot of times for people, we base their Social Security decision on, well, the market's high right now. You might want to pull some money out of your portfolio. And, and not like, your 401k. And, and or not, not your Social Security. Not your Social Security, yeah. and vice versa. Your your portfolio took a dip. Maybe you turn on Social Security so you can let your portfolio alone for a few years. Yeah. That's another flexibility aspect that you talk about here uh, in your portfolio. Another one, which is kind of the same thing, Brad, uh, the bucket strategy or the income bridge strategy. You're Sometimes you're always arriving in the, at the same conclusion, yeah. uh, if you will. I mean, even in the bucket strategy, you look at it and you'll say, well, I, I'm still taking out 4%. But for some people, that's easier to comprehend uh, in terms of I can see that this is my income account and yep. I can see that this is my growth account or conservative and and more aggressive I think for somebody who is more conservative to be able to see and sleep easy that my long-term bucket is in a completely different account and it's okay that that's more aggressive it's okay that that has more volatility because I'm not drawing from that for 10 15 years and so even even we even label them differently long-term and short-term needs uh, that way someone can see. This is the one that never moves. I'm taking my withdrawals out of here. It's very conservative. So the bucket strategy takes a lot more work. It can it can definitely enhance your performance. It can definitely enhance your probability of your portfolio lasting. How? Well, because you're never selling or pulling from underperforming assets. And you're always selling outperforming assets to build that fixed income bucket. So let's say you're retiring. You're not going to work with an advisor you're in a target date fund, and you don't want to think about it. Just do the 4% rule. Don't yeah. worry about it. Yeah. Okay? You you could probably enhance it by working with an advisor, but the advisor's got to be on top of, okay, we look at different periods of time where the market goes through stagnant periods, whether it's 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 years. It does happen. Okay? This is the stock market. But the stock market also gives you the best inflation protection and long-term growth. Okay? So do we have enough? in a fixed income bucket for six, seven, eight years, and every single time you have an outperforming year, what do you do? You put refill it in the bucket. You refill that fixed income bucket. So, um, and in this article in MarketWatch, Brad, it says, this allows you to intelligently navigate the portfolio as opposed to systematic withdrawal plans, okay? Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Uh, the in, uh, the bucket strategy takes much more work, but could vastly increase the longevity of your retirement portfolio. Just any thoughts on that? Again, with both of those, these aren't contractual. These are just you figuring out what that percentage is for your portfolio. There is nothing magical here. There is nothing that your advisor uncovered. It's just doing the work and taking the right withdrawal out, right. adjusting it over time. Hopefully, you're increasing it over time. As your account grows, so will that 4%. Uh, one final uh, aspect and any disclosures you think we need to have here, but you could do a single premium immediate annuity. Yeah. Just and that that truly is the closest to an actual pension. It's really what's happening. It's the only thing here that is is closest to it. You're yeah, right. You're right. It, it, that's really what's what's happening. I mean, it, the the company has a has a bucket of money for you. You know, it, you can see it in that lump sum that they're willing to give you. But they also have all these different pension options for you. Those pension options are not being done from your company. They're being done from an insurance company that's saying, based on your age and life expectancy and the amount of money that the that the company has set aside for you based on these formulas, here is the dollar amount. Well, you, when interest rates were higher and more volatile, you could take that lump sum and go to your own insurance company and shop it around and say, I'm going to give XYZ insurance company my 500000 how much will you give me on a single or a joint life? And sometimes increase it a little bit. But now that interest rates are so low, most of the formulas with the companies are better because they've kind of they've already contracted with the insurance company to give a little bit better of a rate. And they're and like we said, there's no shortcut here. Yeah. The insurance it companies just is what the rate is. They they take into fa- account your life expectancy. Yep. They take into account your spouse's life expectancy if it's joint life, and then they just invest the money and then pay you back. That's all they yeah, do. It's just yeah, it's <laughs> they just buy math. Tre- they buy treasuries and real estate and stocks yep. and bonds. They they buy all the other things yeah. that you would buy anyway. And the only thing I'll say on both of these, whether you're doing it with your own money and contacting an insurance company and buying a single premium immediate annuity or even a deferred immediate annuity, an immediate annuity is just that stream of income. I give you this much, you give me this much back. The only thing no, the, there's no investment. There's no investment. Yes. The only thing your insurance company doesn't know is your health and your longevity. They're not taking a health screening like life insurance, and neither does your pension. So if you don't have longevity in your family, or you're currently sick, or you're currently sick, they're giving you based on your average for you. They're not taking your height and weight and your blood counts. They don't know. They if don't you know if have, you've had cancer or heart disease. If your or parents live to 100, they also don't know that. Maybe a maybe a, a single life is good for you. Could be to your advantage. Yeah, right. So and it, that's that actually you 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 went right over top of it, Brad, because that's exactly what's said here in this article. They're looking at averages. Are you more healthy or less healthy than the average? Yeah. Now, some people don't know where they stand, but uh, you know, if, if you and your spouse in particular, or if you have uh, you know. They'll, they'll take into account if your spouse is a lot younger, but that's something that uh, would would be less payment. So there's no free lunch there. If you if, if if someone is talking to you about this type of thing, and they're saying no, oh, no, I, I I looked into that and I can give them a million dollars and they'll pay me a hundred thousand dollars a year. Doesn't exist. Right. Doesn't you're not exist. getting what you think you're getting. Exactly. Yeah. So the antenna have to go up on investments like this to say, does this make sense in this current interest rate environment in, in this current market environment? You would have to be. In your mid 80s, for that to, to for that to be the case, um, risk free ten year Treasury is one point seven right now um, on immediate annuities. When you die, or if it's a joint life, if you both die, the amount you gave them is gone. That's it. You're just getting your stream of income. So in most cases, if you're in your in your mid 60s, probably takes you about 14 to 15 years to get your own money back. 
because you gave him, say you gave him 100000 probably takes you that long to get the 100 back. And then if you're just doing the math on what I gave them or what they're giving me monthly times 12 divided by what I gave them, if that payout rate is 6.5%, you're never going to get to 65 because you don't live forever and you don't get to get the money back. So the, the closer you get to your life expectancy, the closer you'll get to probably half of that. And if you live beyond that, you'll get a little bit more than that. But you have to live beyond life expectancy to approach what that payout rate is. So only you know if you're going to have the the odds are in your favor to surpass life you only know if the odds are in your favor you really never know yeah and and we're not recommending this no it's one of the things that are in there but it's the opposite of life insurance yeah okay the longer you live the better investment it becomes yeah and life insurance is the other way around the (laughs) the shorter you live the better investment it becomes and so it's never going to be that much if if you go to life expectancy it's never going to be that much different than current treasury rates right it's not yeah it might be a hair higher but it's not ne- you can't look at a 10 year treasury at 1.75 and think that you're somehow going to get to life expectancy on one of these products and and have a 8% annualized return it doesn't it'll be exist. a fraction better if 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 your life expectancy is 20 years out it's probably going to be a quarter of a point better than the 20 year treasury that's what it will be. And so, so if you're doing your rate of return, not your payout rate, that's what it should be. Otherwise, you're not if it's double that, you're you should a red flag should go up that you're not you're not hearing that that agent or that advisor right and there's something different with it or they're not telling you right. Right. So to summarize that, you could take a simple 4 or 5% withdrawal strategy at most. You can look at that bucket strategy we talked about. You can look at an annuity and and not the recommendation to buy or sell any of that. But it, it's something you might want to consider, but always know what's reasonable and what's uh, reasonable based on current market conditions. You're listening to Money Sense. Brad and Kevin Kirsten. We'll be right back. And welcome back. You're listening to Brad and Kevin Kirsten, the advisors of Kirsten Wealth Management Group. A few minutes left here. Kevin, we're, talk, we're going to talk maybe in, in next week's show, but we're going to hint a little bit about this. Uh, a couple different things with maybe a buyer beware and a little bit of a reminder of where we were 13, 14 years ago in particular not just with your own personal uh, home, your your primary residence, but where people were over a decade ago with buying second homes or buying investment real estate. And we're at the point now where January to January, pre-pandemic to one year later post-pandemic, home prices across the entire country there isn't a major market that wasn't up more than 10%. Some were a little bit more. Florida was about an 11% average. Uh, parts of California and Phoenix were 15%. Even in in uh, the East Coast, it's had the most shutdowns, up more than, than 10%. Uh, in the Midwest, Chicago's the least, but Detroit was 11. All across Ohio was over 10. So here we are now. I'm anticipating that we're going to have this over the next year. And by the way, the Case-Shiller Home Price Index is 28% higher than it was pre-financial crisis. Okay. Yeah, so we're, we're everything is higher. And and here we have people with their, their primary residence is worth more. Their debt is very low. They're probably going to have bankers saying, oh, yeah, you know, uh, um, this is what I'm anticipating. You're on vacation. Maybe you rent an Airbnb. Maybe you're in a hotel. And you think, God, I really love it here. You know, it's... Uh, it, Key West is warm all year round. I wonder if I could just buy a place. And, oh, I could just rent it, right? Why couldn't I rent it? Now we have Airbnb. I could just rent it. And it will pay for itself. And you go see somebody, and they say, well, do you have a, a, a home mortgage? Eh, but barely any. Well, we could use that leverage to buy this house. And so here well, you maybe are. you already have a home mortgage, and you call your financial advisor. You have an IRA with. Yeah, and, and you say, I want to buy this house uh, second home, it'll pay for itself. Don't worry. And I, uh, I just I take two hundred thousand out. Advisor says, well, that's going to cost you two hundred seventy-five thousand because uh, of taxes, penalties, penalty. Maybe, maybe you're over. Maybe you're sixty, and uh, it's still going to cost you on taxes. I don't care. I want to do it. This is where we want to live. And when the next crash comes, there won't be anybody to rent that house. And now you're retired and you don't have enough income to pay for the extra mortgage that you did. Your mortgage is underwater. the cycle will continue again. There is nothing wrong with renting an Airbnb for a long time. There's nothing wrong with going for an extended vacation in a hotel. When you're done, you don't have another bill. 
You don't have to pay taxes. You don't have to pay insurance. You don't have to worry about a hurricane. You don't have to worry about the roof going bad, the furnace going out, the air conditioner going out. You don't have to worry about maintenance, plumbing, electrical, all the things that cost money. Landscaping, uh, uh, community fees, monthly community fees that that go into these yeah. places. Yeah. It is one thing to, to sell your primary residence to say, I'm going to move down to Florida. But to get the second home and think that you're going to make money on it, I think is is good for a brief period of time. But the second, you talk about things that are cyclical and things that are, are, are not recession-proof, renting your home out is not recession-proof, okay? When, when COVID hit, unless you were in Florida and you were wide open, you were not going to be able to rent your place out if you had one in New York or if you had one in the Carolinas, even in a vacation area. You weren't going to be able to rent and it out. And if you're looking at something that is currently 500000 that was 250000 a year ago. Yeah. Uh, and they're telling you there's a bidding war and you better come in with all cash or you're not going to be able to get it. You really want to be the last person in that game of musical chairs, which, by the way, already happened 13 years ago. Yeah. Do not forget, people ruined their lives 13 years ago over-leveraging and paying too much for property. Yeah. Okay? The it, thought of the Airbnb and you being able to rent your place, it should be the opposite. It should be... Airbnb is so easy, and there are so many people doing Airbnb and VRBO, that the price of the place that you would get is actually lower than it should be because there's so much on the market. And that makes it bad as a buyer or a renter. It makes it bad if you own a home and you're trying to rent it on Airbnb because there's so much competition. It makes it good as the consumer of an Airbnb. You want to go rent a, a place for a week? There's so much to choose from. You are the... You are the, the one with the control there. You yes. can wait till the last minute. They'll let you cancel now where they didn't used to. Uh, and and you can get a lot more than if you're going to buy. Think about that. If, if, if you're going to buy, you can afford a, a one or two bedroom. You, if you're going to rent for a week, you can get one with a pool. Get a, get a four or five bedroom. Have your kids come down for a little bit. You can get a lot more house for that week or month and then if something once comes per up, year. If something comes up in the economy or your life and you can't, you, you can't go to that location anymore. You don't, you don't have a burden of maintaining something or selling something. And if you look at your current retirement situation and you're in pretty good shape, don't mess with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because what, we're, we're only saying this, Brad, because we saw it. Yeah. We saw it 13 years ago. I'd much rather see somebody have a lifetime of expensive vacations than a mediocre uh, a second home that they can't afford. That's right. Yeah. So, All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to Money Sense, brought to you each week by Kirsten Wealth Management Group. To contact Dennis, Brad, or Kevin professionally, call 419-872-0067 or 800-875-1786. Their email address is kirstenwealth at lpl.com, and their website is kirstenwealth.com. Opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your financial advisor prior to investing. Securities are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.